Hi, and welcome to the fifth episode of the It's a Mimic Campaign Builder. I am Dan. And I'm Adam. And over the course of this series, we'll be sitting down and creating a session-by-session campaign that you can either follow along with week-by-week or take inspiration from as you see fit. This unique episode will focus on the concept of dynamic encounters and why you should use them when preparing D&D sessions. We're going to break down the 12 different types of dynamic encounters and how we prepare for each one. Remember that through the duration of this series, we'll be building off an assumed party of the following five archetypes. A warrior, a priest, a mage, a criminal, and an outdoorsman. They'll be slowly leveling up and we'll make sure that we're clear about what tier and what specific level we're working on. Let's get to building. All right, Adam. So we're talking about dynamic encounters today, and uh, it's kind of breaking away from our format that we've been setting up so far. Um, We want to know what a dynamic encounter is and why we should use them. All right. So the idea of a dynamic encounter, I mean, this is nothing new to Dungeons & Dragons or role-playing games in general, but it is something that I've kind of almost codified. I worked through so that most of my actual encounters that I build in real campaigns are what I call dynamic encounters. What exactly is a dynamic encounter? It's a, an encounter that starts um, in one sp- in one place and ends in a radically different one. In reference also to the, the three main pillars of uh, Dungeons & Dragons and role-playing games in general, right? Like, this is where we're coming up with this idea. Yes. So, the three main pillars are combat, exploration, and role-playing. Yeah. So, to have a successful campaign, you need to hit... Even a successful session, you need to hit at least all three of these things. At least once, but probably multiple times, depending on the size of your session. Yeah, and I mean, you don't have to really focus too hard on it. It can be in very subtle ways that you're doing it, as long as they're all consistently present. But there are different kinds of encounters that exist out there that I think the people really focus on the combat in 5th edition. I mean, D&D is built to be a combat-heavy mechanic game, right? We've said before that, you know, combat in Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition is really well ironed out, is really uh, polished, is really well balanced even to a certain extent. Uh, to the bonus, to the uh, plus and negative side of the scale. Uh, but exploration and uh, role-playing aren't as well codified. No, they're, they're really left by the wayside. And so... It really helped me to think about adding more and more encounters, role-playing encounters and exploration encounters. And there are a variety of different kinds out there, but nobody's talking about them. Yeah. So as we continue with this um, series, I wanted to focus on different sides, different kinds of uh, role-playing and exploration encounters. We all have a pretty good handle on combat encounters, but we will be talking about those as well. Obviously, they're Obviously, a major part. Yeah. Um, so there are 12 main ones. Let's start with the first basic nine. I'm going to list them off, okay? And you guys are going to see the format here pretty quickly. The The first nine with that dynamic encounter are very simply starting in one pillar and heading to another. Or heading to a different encounter within the same pillar. Where you start with a combat and then you move to a different combat without a break. Yeah. It just, this encounter morphs into something different. Now, this will help you bring intensity, will help you bring uh, a level of stakes to any given combat encounter when you go from this combat to combat. Yeah, that's really what this is about, is adding a consistent sense of there being consequence to every action. 
when you have dynamic encounters, it becomes a real strategy, I guess, to run away. Mm-hmm. Like, retreat is on the table now. Yeah. Just because things can suddenly shift or change, or you can just drop out of initiative and say, I don't want to fight anymore, let's resolve this in another way. Which we don't see people do often. No. Right? Or suddenly change... Every fight's a fight to the death. <laughs> yeah, suddenly changing tactics to non-lethal damage, right? Um, anyway, so there's combat to combat, combat to exploration, and combat to role-playing. And these are that's the first three, and that's really straightforward. The idea that you're starting with a fight, and that fight either turns into a different kind of fight or another fight, or it turns into you having to interact with the environment, or it turns into you having to role-play at a moment. The role play, for example, is when someone suddenly um, surrenders in the middle of combat. Yep. What do you do? This is perfect for like a uh, highway banditman thing. You kick their ass and now you've got to talk to them. Yeah, or when you're dealing with Yugoloths who are mercenaries and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden the tide of battle shifts against them, they may stop. And I've done this in mine. They will stop in the middle of a fight and say, hey, look, how much are you willing to pay for us to just come over to your side right now? Yep. Um, and with exploration, I mean, we never see the environment. I always think of the first Ninja Turtles movie. Okay. Always? Uh, always. Always? Always. When, when I look at combat to exploration, this is where I start. Okay. Where they are fighting the Foot Clan inside the apartment building above the pawn shop. And they're sitting there and they're fighting and fighting and fighting. And they do so much damage to the floor that the floor caves in. Okay. And then for a moment, they have to stand up. And they look around because they fall into the level below them. And they're like stretching and looking around going like... Are, are we still fighting? Is this still happening? Where are we now? Right? That basic idea of you can be in a combat, go flying down like a, a, a set of tracks on a mine car, yeah. right? Fighting a skeleton and suddenly the mine car stops and you and the skeleton get pitched out of it in opposite directions. And the rest of the party is somewhere else now. You've been split from the party and you were in combat. It didn't end. It just stopped. You did not resolve this, and now you have an exploration that hits you immediately. The other hand of this is, you know, uh, having a fight, one guy gets away, and now you have to chase this person through something. Like, you're fighting on a roadside, um, like, ruins, and the kobold gets away, and now you've got to chase after them through the woods. Yeah. Right? Like, that. that's that's a way to do this. And, And it adds this interesting little aspect of... Uh, character and and uniqueness to each encounter you do and it's it's some something as simple as one thing gets away or you fall to a different area they're really awesome and easy to do so the next one is uh exploration to combat exploration to exploration and exploration to role playing this one is a little bit more straightforward and i feel like every time that they that there's ever exploration in D&D, it's always leading to the next thing, mm-hmm. which is why it's not really given the opportunity to be its own thing and to breathe because it feels like a like a lead-in. You go exploring the ruins until you find the combat, the treasure, the NPC, whatever it is, right? So we've all had that one guy at the table that, whether through his own disinterest or through it not being handled well at the table, sits back when you hit the exploration side of things. Um Having a really good combat or having a really good exploration into something and and really spending a lot of time thinking about the exploration, trying to make it not so much of a tr- uh, transitory type of thing, but more of a uh, intriguing action leading into a combat, leading into something like that will pull that person forward and get them engaged in the broader scope of the game and hopefully even pull that person into a role-playing encounter as well. Yes, but I want to be really clear. 
an exploration encounter going into a combat encounter or a role-playing encounter, whatever it is, is not just walking into a dark room and lighting a torch. No. And looking around. That's not an encounter. What it is, is just simply describing the room to them, all right? That's not a, a true exploration. What we're dealing with, with as far as exploration goes, is is determining investigation checks and more than just perception, but uh, survival checks as well. Mm-hmm. Going out and <clears throat> when I think of exploration to combat, I think of scouting, where you go out and you you scout the area first until you find an enemy to fight. A patrol is another exploration. A, a patrol is just a scout, but yeah. on a fixed loop, right? Um, exploration it can really just be keeping watch at night. Oh, yeah. Right. And so it, you see how it, it is often leading into the next thing. Um, this one makes the most sense to be a dynamic encounter, but we don't play enough of the exploration. When you have the ranger go off to find out what that noise was, you have them go out, they probably roll a stealth check and a perception check, and you're done. Right? Give them a couple other things to do in the meantime as well. Yeah. There are noises in different directions. There's a snapping of a branch to the right, but what could be a low babbling brook or voices to the left. Give them choices, yeah. And so these are actual encounters. These are choices that they have to make that will determine what happens. Yeah. So It's, it's not just that you see that one wolf moving off in the distance. It's There are choices, there are dynamic options you can throw in to an exploration thing. Yes, you see two wolves in the distance, but the howling that you hear may be closer and from the left, right? And yeah. so these are different ideas around exploration that I feel we need to stop and really give it its proper due. Exactly. The third pillar, of course, is role-playing, and these are going to be your 7th, 8th, and ninth different kinds of dynamic encounters. These are role-playing to combat, role-playing to exploration, or role-playing to role-playing. And role-playing to role-playing is and role-playing to combat are really done normally, I think, all the time, where one person says, oh, it, you know, you're talking to the merchant, I'm sorry, that's going to be worth 50 gold. And then you're like, all right, well, look, I'm going to go over and distract the the hand that's helping over in the corner yep. while well, you go steal the thing. So there's, it just turns right into another role-playing, one into another. Or role-playing to combat where, all right, I'm not getting the answer I want from the prince. I'm drawing my sword. Yeah. Right, here we go. And we Or the villain is monologuing, and then you go in. Yeah, and, and we've seen this at tables so many times, right? But role-playing to exploration is one that I feel we don't, we don't see a lot of. Yeah. I guess what I'm really making a point for, for exploration here yeah, as I, as being a pillar that's not explored. No. Ironically. <laughs> and and if you want to add a lot of flavor to your uh, campaign, to your, to your specific encounters, just thinking of the exploration side of things and inserting that where, where it needs to go either. Like a role play to uh, exploration is talking to the prince and then having to go hunt something. Right, it, it it's or or talking to a merchant and then walking with that caravan through and trying to uh, guide a caravan. Right, exploration is also the one of the three pillars that takes the most in-game time, in my opinion. It can. I mean, I've been I've been in some pretty intense combats that have lasted for hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but once once you start exploring, when you are off the beaten path and you are out there exploring. It can take a while. Yeah. Right? 
I find that sometimes theater of the mind is the way to go. Sometimes using a map is the way to go. It's going to really vary depending on your certain scenario, but, um, and really what you have the tools at your fingertips, right? Yeah. But exploration really does need to be thought of more than just the, the thing that gets us to the encounter. Yeah. It really is its own encounter. And you will see that as we continue to uh, build throughout this series. Let's talk about starting and ending with the different peers. Why we would want to start or end with... Uh, let's let's start with combat. It's like, the easiest one, why not? Right. So when you start an encounter with combat, what are the benefits? Uh, your engagement goes through the roof around the table. Absolutely. That, that, that's, the best, that's the best reason to start, right? Um, if you are starting an entire session with, okay, guys, uh, you know, good to have everybody here. Thanks, John, for bringing the chips. Um, roll initiative. Everyone's like, oh, oh, crap. Uh, okay, we got to get this going. And now everyone's dialed in. It's a really good way to engage your party. It's a really good way to move them in. If you do this halfway through a session where everyone's starting to, you know, list a bit and get a little tired because you all been sitting around a table for six hours at a halfway point. Got to want to be part of that table. Um, but bringing in a, a hard combat real fast is a good way to re-engage interest and re-engage uh, your players around the table. I like ending with combat a lot as well because what it does is it suddenly subverts the expectations of what's going on. Where you've started off with a role-playing encounter or an exploration or even another combat and suddenly danger rears its ugly head out of nowhere. Yeah. And the party's not expecting it. And it puts them immediately on the defensive. Well, you're talking about engagement and it gets everybody kind of paying attention and having fun and whatnot and, and they're involved in what's happening at the table that second combat that comes in partway through whatever the encounter is mm -hmm. that's the thing that's really going to shock them put them on the defensive and make it feel like they're out of control because something new happened even if it's something minor if you were fighting 40 orcs and you're level i don't know 12 you guys are just walking through a swath of them and there's only three left but eight more show up that doesn't swing the tide of battle at all. No. But, and that's 20% of the original force. It's not a whole lot. But it's going to suddenly feel like, oh shit, there's more here. Because we were only down to three. What happened? What is this about? Yeah. Right? And so, it doesn't have to necessarily make it harder. It just always feels harder when you add combat into it. Uh, if you're in a role play... Um, if you're in the middle of a role-play encounter or an exploration encounter and suddenly you get ambushed, the stakes go through the roof. Mm -hmm. And that's just what this comes down to over and over and over again. Bringing combat in is usually a consequence, often an ambush. Yeah, it, or a consequence at the very least, right? It's um, the way I, I've always viewed, like going from a combat to combat encounter, I think is also, it's a bit of a hairy situation because if your party is getting heavily drawn down by that or beat down by whatever that uh, first encounter is and you start that second encounter, you're now at the danger of killing your entire party for one. But you're at danger of adding a, maybe monotony to it um, with this whole orc uh, idea. Throwing eight more orcs down is just, all right, so now we have eight more on the bottom list. So we have, you know, 41, 42 through 48 now to kill. Dang. But if you throw a ogre or you throw a spellcaster of some sort in yeah, there. Yeah, but you see... What you're doing, though, is that you're 
what you're doing is you're amp you're ramping up the difficulty level and what i'm saying is it doesn't need to be that the eight more orcs that show up could just be minions they could have one hit point and they could represent an additional threat and it will still feel frightening yeah well you well you can add and it and it may behoove you to do that most of the time i agree Add an extra level of difficulty. Ramp up with consequence. I'm, I I would just say do it. Um, my primary purpose not is to add more consequence, but to add uh, a different perspective or a little bit more flavor to show two different combats, right? Because one combat could bleed into the other, right? So if you're adding a ogre or you're adding a spellcaster, you're adding a different aspect that now has to be dealt with. So now it's a different combat, right? You're shifting the face of the combat. Yes, um, again, I still like the idea of just increasing numbers. That is the simplest one for people to wrap their brain around, especially level one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, when we're talking tier one, it is easy enough to fight that one goblin until he starts to scream. And then <laughs> two more show up. Right. And that's it. You're just increasing numbers. It's very simple to wrap your brain around. It's not about the one town's guardman. It's about the guy with the horn that he's going to blow yeah. when he sees you, right? Because it it's just adding more bodies. And we'll talk about the action economy here in a little bit. But that is so, on its, on its own, that's enough consequence for most, especially inexperienced parties, to really kind of get put on, the, on their heels. Yep. And step back and say, oh, oh shit, we're in it now. Mm-hmm. Even if they didn't fuck up. They and and this this is just a consequence of being in the world. Yeah, I like starting with exploration. Um, like I spoke of before, I don't think we need to spend much time on this. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah, you follow the tracks to get to the encampment. You are hunting. You are scouting. You are just delving into a dungeon to find the treasure, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I will say that we don't really touch on anywhere else. Exploration is really, really, really good for traps. Yes. And it has to be your job as a dungeon master to keep those traps both on theme, but also very different. Mm -hmm. So that you are not hitting the monotony of the same trap over and over and over again. Another pit trap and another pit trap and another pit trap. Exactly. So again, when when we're talking about combat, all five of our archetypes are going to be equally as effective in it. Yes. When we're talking about exploration, however, you're relying on your outdoorsman or maybe your criminal. Yep. As a general rule. Now, there are other kinds of exploration as well where a mage or a priest, if you're exploring a a temple or you're exploring the ruins of an ancient arcane site where something was summoned. Like, there are other kinds of explorations, but for the most part, it is going to come down to the criminal or the outdoorsman. Yeah. I would also uh, say uh, if you're ending with an exploration... Uh, make it more than just a thing gets away. Add add a degree of uh, environmental difficulty when that thing gets away. Either you're running through a forest and you have to deal with, uh, you know, uh, harsh underbrush. Or if you're in a cave system, it's cobalt dipping into a hole that's too small for anyone else in your party to get through. So now you got to figure it out. Or it's a... Uh, uh, I don't know, some uh, a different creature getting away into a spot where you can't get to. Now the party has to like stack up crates or something to get to this next level to move on, right? Like there's got to be some other way to move on to the next thing other than that thing is moving in front of you, run after it. Yeah, see, I find that exploration can just be as well, you've, you've killed everything here, loot the encampment. 
Yep, loot the body. A, a lot of our treasure and stuff that we get is from the exploration side of things because you're rolling investigation checks or perception checks. Yeah. It can also be determining what do these glyphs on the wall actually represent. That can be part of the exploration as well. Um, and being able to end a combat or a role-playing scenario to then go into exploration. So here's an example. The butcher hires you on to deal with the rats in his basement. Good old oh, rat catcher. Yeah, right at the very beginning. Well, it starts with the role-playing, and that immediately turns into exploration because he gets you down into his basement. That's when you discover the hole to the sewer, right? In the That's in the corner behind the crates. Yeah. That's when you discover that, man, there might be more to this guy than, than meets the eye. He's up to shit. There's way too much gold down here. There's a lot of swords for a butcher. <laughs> There's a lot of legs of lamb here, and we saw no goats or lambs on our way into town. What? <laughs> yeah, and so, and so there, there can definitely be the opportunity for discovery as you end um, uh, one of your dynamic encounters with exploration. You can discover, and this is also where I would reveal betrayals mm-hmm. and um, subvert expectations, where you are expecting that. That you're going to be helping this butcher out. You get down there and realize that, oh shit, he's a cannibal. And all of his food is long pork. And that's not good. Yeah, the legs of lamb are legs of man. Yes. <laughs> and so this is... And now, like, what do you do with that? And that's going to stop the party cold because they've discovered this. Mm-hmm. This is where exploration needs to be um, explored more. And we, we need to be discussing it more in a, as a D&D community. All right. So the last pillar then is starting and ending, I guess, with roleplay yep. encounters. Starting with a roleplay encounter is very simple and straightforward. And people do it all the time. The person walks up to you and engages you in conversation. Or you walk up to someone else and engage them in conversation. And this is really, really basic D&D. And those conversations are usually either over-the-top ridiculous because someone is doing a crazy voice, or they're, get to the point, here's some exposition. Or quest-giving, right? Like, this is your old man walks up to you in a tavern. Yeah, but again, that's exposition. Here it is. Here's the thing that you need to know to do the next thing. Yeah. Right? There's very little role-play for the sake of role-play. Like, I just want to go talk to that weird guy over in the corner. He's got nothing going on. He's just an interesting character. This is the Boblin the Goblin scenario, right? (laughs) That is floating around the internet that everybody seems to love so much. Yeah. Where this was just an NPC that the players put their attention on, and therefore that's what we're doing now. So roleplay can just be that simple of walking up and talking to someone, but I like roleplay encounters that have more weight to them. For example, haggling with a merchant or being questioned by the town guard just just because you're walking late at night. Yeah, you're not you're not in trouble. Just where are you going? Where There's are you no doing? curfew you're breaking, but it's weird. Yeah, why are you walking through the streets at two o'clock in the morning with a sword? Yeah, exactly, right? And so, do you mind if I just walk with you for the next couple of blocks? And just to make sure. Just to make sure you're safe. Yeah. And so, these are things that, that can happen with the where the encounter starts with role-playing and can very quickly turn into something else. That idea of you being escorted, you may get some exploratory information from this town guard that's escorting you now. Mm-hmm. He says, hey, you know what? Oh, you're down this way? Let me show you this back alley. I bet you don't know about this. You're new to town. Here's a shortcut through to the... And this is going to matter later when you're going through a chase and you're hunting down burglars that are whatever, right? Like, 
this is is dropping the hints and the bits and pieces early. Role playing is great because it's the one that allows you to foreshadow more than anything else does. So that that's starting with the role playing, right? And what that often does is it it bleeds into the next thing. It kind of um, projects what's coming next. Yep. As well, you know when when the the executioner narrows his eyes at you in the tavern that you are now on the executioner's bad side. That may turn into a combat, a, a bar fight, right? It, you know that you are talking to the prince and the prince starts laughing hysterically at everything the bard says. Oh shit, you may get something good out of this, mm-hmm. right? It, it could turn into something else. But how do we get to role-playing from, from somewhere else when we're ending with role-playing? Usually it's another person joining in on the role-play or it's uh, you've... Uh, the way I kind of look at it, and this is going to get me a lot of flack, is it, think of it like a dating sim almost, um, which are fun, oh, which Terry are fun is excited games. to Terry, hear you Terry's talk. Terry's excited this. about this, yeah. but this is uh, you have unlocked this level of uh, relationship with this character. So this character at first was just neutral with you, but through your initial role play uh, encounter, now he's friendly, and he's like, wait, 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 before you guys go, I do have another thing to tell you. Right. And now you're shifting into a completely different, you know, I told you to be wary of the shopkeeper. No, no, no. Be afraid of the shopkeeper. Right. And then you're shifting into these different encounters by just changing the level of uh, relationship with this character. Right. Their, their level of hostility towards you and your party. Right. Um, that's one way to end with a role playing encounter where he's like, okay, here you go. There's this information. I have to go now, right? Whether it's this bum on the side of the street or this thieves guild uh, uh, contact that you guys have, right? It could also be a they hand they hand you a note to go talk to this other person. Okay, I I don't mean how to end a role playing. It sounds like that's what you're saying. No, no, no. I'm saying like shift into a different one by having a different level of relationship become unlocked through the first role play encounter. Okay, so then how do you get to a role-play encounter from the other two pillars? From the other two pillars? Uh, you, as a... I mean, it's really simple. It is. With, with the exploration, you stumble upon a, a new person to talk to, right? Yep. Or or you've done an investigation into who wrote this letter, and hey, you found them. Yeah. Right? Um, combat into a role-play is someone giving up. Is, is someone throwing their hands up and saying, listen, I surrender. Or it's someone saying, like you said earlier with the Yugoloths going, hey, you kicked our ass. How about we fight with you now? Right? Or it's the good old-fashioned, all right, you've proven your worth. Yeah. Now that you've proven your worth, here's a mission. Or just have someone, a more high, high-powered high character or a well-respected NPC come in and stop the fight. Yep. And try to talk everybody down. Or there could just be something simple as the environment shifts underneath you. The two ships that are fighting on the high seas break apart. Mm-hmm. And now you can no longer, you know, cross swords with them. So you're just stuck hurling insults while everyone is loading the cannons and waiting for the oh, next yeah. round. Yeah, right? a chasm appears between the two groups and all of the archers are out of arrows. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> something something like that. An anti-magic field drops down on the mage battle. Yeah. Now it's two wizards in a slap fight, right? Like, <laughs> but they're going to sit there and just try to be the best bards they can be with their cutting words. <laughs> but but it, whatever it is, you, you see how our location stays the same. 
Mm-hmm. That is a definition of of the basic idea of our of our our simple encounters here. Yeah. The dynamic encounters is the location stays the same and the party stays the same. There's nobody splitting off to do something else. Whatever it is, when the encounter starts, however many people are there from the party, it's the same number of people in the same location. It's the stakes and the actions that are changing, whether it's exploration, combat, or role-playing. And you can look at that setting as being maybe just this portion of the dungeon, this room, this cell that we're stuck in. It could be uh, on the ship, and the ship is moving. Uh, but you are on the ship, and, but you and are that's it. Yeah. yeah. And so when you move to a new location, that's a new encounter. So chaining together multiple encounters. I'm going to talk to this guy here, and then I'm going to go next door and talk to that guy there, those and then are, I'm going to go across this town. And those are different encounters. Those are different encounters. What we're talking about here is taking the different pillars and making them one encounter that has multiple aspects of. Yes. Now. We talked before we started recording, uh, we talked about, well, what happens when you chain three of the pillars together or or four different uh, aspects all into one where it starts off in a combat that turns to role playing, then back into combat. And then suddenly you have to go exploring something, you know, when you're looting the bodies and you discover that there's this and that breaks out into another role play. Yes. OK, great. You have five aspects now to this crazy encounter that you have. But we could sit here all day tossing hypotheticals. Try to start with your basic nine. The combat to combat, combat to exploration, and combat to role-playing. Exploration to combat, exploration to exploration, or exploration to role-playing. Role-playing to role-playing, role-playing to exploration, or role-playing to combat. I've been practicing that shit for days. So <laughs> I was impressed. You didn't look down at the paper once. So we've talked about the previous nine Uh Types. There are now three more that don't really kind of fit within here um, that are a bit weird, but are also encounter based mechanics. So, yeah, and they can encapsulate some aspects of the others. Yep. And they can straight up involve the others, but they're not your standard rolling skills or, or, your basic role playing. They're different. Yeah. You're, you're not necessarily putting the pointy end into the soft flesh of the person in front of you with these three. And that's just role-playing as a bard. Hey. Uh, so what we have are we have skill challenges, uh, we have downtime, and we have party politics and, and and just discussions amongst the party themselves. So we'll get to those, but let's talk about skill challenges first. Skill challenges, we've, we've spoken about in the past. There's a lot of information out there about skill challenges. Um, and it is when there are a number of different opportunities to use different skills around the table and you will end up getting past some sort of danger. It's usually a danger, mm-hmm. although it can be investigating through a library, right? Or going out and getting information from townsfolk. It could also be a chase. It could be a... One of my favorites was an evacuation of a town that we did where people were using their skills. Yeah. So there are all sorts of... Like, everyone always thinks that this is exploration with the skill challenge because the the mountain is collapsing around you and you need to get out. Use your acrobatics, athletics, your... Yeah. Whatever it is, your survival to, to get out. But the the basic idea here is that you roll initiative and you go in order. Each different person in the party has the opportunity to roll one skill. They and say, they have to justify it. And they have to justify it. They say, hey, look, I know that the scenario is we are, we're chasing the bandits. 
I'm going to use my athletic skill to get a sudden burst of speed to, to close the distance. That's great. Once they've done that, they can't do that again. Yeah. Athletics is now off the board for them. I've seen some tables where it's now athletics is off the board for the table. Yeah. I think that depends on how many players you have and yep. how many different classes that you have around as well. Is there a whole lot of overlap? Yep. If you've got three rogues and a bard sitting at the table. And everyone does, ac- and the first guy does acrobatics. Yeah, you, I, I'm just taking that off the table for everybody. We're all going to get there. But you all, every skill has been covered three times over, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so the, the idea is that you need a certain number of successes before a certain number of failures. The more successes that you need or the fewer failures, that's going to make it harder. Because you're relying on these skill roles, um, these ability checks, to be able to get you through to the next... Uh, Encounter. To the next stage. To the next experience of the table. To the next thing. Yeah, to, to, to the resolution of yeah. the issue. So, um, But here's what you need to know. When you're going to do a skill challenge, the, there are two things that are going to make your life so much easier. Because you don't know what the players are going to do. And you as a DM set up the conflict, but you don't know how they're going to get out of it or even if they're going to succeed. Mm-hmm. So there, here are two things. One, understand what the consequences of failure are before you start. And that consequence of failure can never be death. No, no. You're, you're completely right. People at the table will riot if you kill them during a skill challenge. And it's not just that. It's not, it's not fair because if you are... Trying to trying to escape the mountain and and it caves in. You guys didn't escape in time. And that's a total party kill that just that just ends. Yeah, you're no. just done. All these months of character work is over. Now you're trapped inside a, a mountain and you got to find a different way out. And now you've got resources. You're going to run out of food and water. And yeah, with the skill challenge, you are blocking progression through failure rather than stopping the game through failure. Exactly. And you want to say that if they do, if they succeed on the skill challenge, they either get a reward or the next thing becomes easier. Yes, exactly. If they fail, they either get a slight punishment or the next thing becomes harder. And if you really wanted to go uh, hog wild with this, you could add a certain degrees with it, right? So you have your base, you know, if they succeed four times, they win. If they fail three times, they lose. But if they succeed four and they've already failed two, then you still have an, like their their bonus is a little bit less than they would have got if they just swept the board, right? I kind of view this as kind of like a playoff, uh, like sports ball reference, like playoffs where if you win all four of your games and you sweep the series, then you get a break. You, you it's going to be a lot easier for you going moving forward. Yeah, you get a bye week. But if you go a full seven games, you're wiped. By you're wiped by by game one of the next series. So, like, have different gradients of consequence based off what the uh, successes or failures are. I do have a question for you, Adam, and and I, I honestly I don't know what you're going to say about this one, but um, normally with skill checks. Critical uh, successes and critical failures don't really matter. That's right? right. They're supposed to be just a combat thing. If you crit with your sword, you do double damage. If you botch with your sword, in stock rules, you miss. But in some rules, you roll a fumble, which has another... Sure. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I roll, for me, when I do skill challenges at my table, a critical success counts as two and a critical fa- like two successes and a critical failure 
counts as two failures. See, I won't do that. And my reasoning is I don't want a skill challenge to last 25 minutes long. Yep, that's fair enough. All right. So therefore, I don't have a seven successes before seven failures. I try to keep it four to three, five to three, yeah, four to two, something like that, right? Get three successes before a single failure. Now that bard and their inspiration die means a fuck of a lot. Yeah. And you guys are relying on your halfling to do everything, right? So, so when, when you are dealing with fewer overall numbers, giving the double on a crit and a failure, um, is going to either make your skill challenge, uh, 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 fart in the wind. It's going to be just, this nothing, was just a yeah. thing that happened. It's nothing. Yeah. Two guys roll dice and then nothing. Yeah. Right? Or it is going to be, well, that wasn't fair. That just ended. But, and then everyone turns to the person, usually Dan, who rolled that one and yells at him for the next three minutes. Before, but, or three weeks. One of the, one of the two. But I get yelled at a lot. <laughs> no, what I would do instead is, you know, when I allow you to finally get the killing blow on an enemy, I say, how do you want to do it? Yeah. And I let you, you choose how to do it. When you, however, are uh, running down through this this collapsing corridor and you stop and use a perception check to sniff which way in the fork in the road has the clean air, the fresh air coming in, and you succeed and you roll a nat 20, how do you want to succeed on that? Yeah, okay. What do you smell? What is the thing that, that makes it so... So it reminds you of this, and maybe it'll give you advantage on your next roll. Oh, yeah. Or cool, it'll give cool. you, like, you you may get a, a plus one on your next thing, or a re-roll, or something like that. I really like the idea of giving advantage on the next skill challenge. The guy crits, it's still one success, but the next person has advantage to succeed. Yeah. Right? Because whatever they just did is affecting the people down the table. And same with the failure. You wanna, you wanna introduce some part, uh, some interesting party dialogue, player, like table dialogue. Have the one guy botch and the next person who's only got, I don't know, their acrobatics to roll next and it's their key stat, but now they have to roll it with disadvantage because someone failed at an arcana check. Sure. Sure. Do it. Yeah. I, I, and what I would say is that's the idea of confidence. Or lack of confidence yep. based on what's previously happened. And maybe I wouldn't have advantage or disadvantage. I would just say, hey, look, you, because you crit, you can help one other person before your next turn. Which will then grant advantage on the skill check that you, that you choose. Because you are feeling really good about yourself in, cool. in this moment. Or disadvantage because you are going to uh, meddle with someone. Yeah. So... You, but again, you get to choose which one that you're going to meddle with. So it is the wizard with Arcana because they got a pretty good chance of passing that one. Yep. You're not going to meddle with the with the um, the priest who is trying to do an Arcana check, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, there's there's one more little question here uh, before we move on to the next thing that I want to bring up is um, the idea of your class skill, the the things you are the proficient in, the things you choose right away. Um, you shouldn't feel bound by what you've put proficiencies in to choose as a player for your skill challenge. You can go outside of what you've put the points in. Now, yes, having your proficiency modifier will make the, a roll easier. But if something else makes a little bit more sense, me as the DM might change the DCs of the skill challenge if the skill you're rolling makes more sense. Absolutely. If you are running down a tunnel, the the athletics check is definitely, it has a 
uh, it's lower. The difficulty challenge rating is lower on an athletics but than I, it is on a history check yeah, to get if, through it. Or, or an arcana. Yeah. Like, I, I'm going to roll a sleight of hand during this chase. Why? Why are you rolling a sleight of hand? Yeah, please justify to me how we've used deception, intimidation, and persuasion on the social encounter skill challenge that we've got here. Yeah. And you want to use medicine. Tell me how and why. Right. <laughs> and you may justify it, but it is a start. Oh, I want to see if he's feeling sickly and is there something that I can work on for? Okay, sure. You're stretching, but I'll give it to you. The DC is higher. Exactly. So as, as a dungeon master, uh, understand that that DC is kind of flexible. And as a player, understand you're not bound to what your proficiencies are. Try to cater your choices toward the, the scenario, the scenario itself. All right, next we're doing downtime, which is which is it, it's a fun one and it's it's kind of weird as well. It 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 feels like the least supported, but also the most. Like there there's yeah, d- depending on on what part of downtime that you're looking at. So downtime, just just to clarify for everyone, when we say downtime, we mean you are not out in the bush, you are not actively doing anything. This is during your rest. Right, I mean, you, you 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 could be, be camping. You yeah. could be camping, but you're not actively hunting or tracking, or you're not on your march on your way through here. This is when you are not actively adventuring. What does your character do? Yeah. Now there are three different kinds of downtime. Really, the first one is fulfilling quests. Go talk to this person here. Yeah, that could just be a social encounter, but this is when you an NPC just asks you to deliver a letter. There's really nothing else here, but you're going to do it. So you take the letter over and you decide, I'm going to take five minutes. I'm going to go drop this letter off. Yeah. Okay. That's that's cool. That's I don't need anything more from that. There's no roles involved. And that's the thing about downtime. There's very rarely a role involved in downtime. Yeah. Next on the list is shopping, which could take the most time out of everything else here, where you are sitting down with your uh, players and they are spending their hard-earned money from the dungeons that they have raided, right? And and this is this could be a role play encounter because you're talking with merchants, or you could just scrap the idea of merchants entirely, like I've seen at some tables, and they're just going, okay, are these items available, right? All of these are valid ways to do the shopping thing. Um, I would, as a uh, DM who really wants to pull players in to uh, embody their characters and really be engaged with their characters make them a little bit more of a social encounter during the during this downtime stretch where you are talking with the merchants um you don't have a pumat soul if you don't do this right you don't have these merchants that are fan favorite characters or even player favorite characters without having this in right like and then you then you build relationships with these guys which brings us to our third well hold on no not yet okay. I, i'm not i didn't get a chance to talk about dropping dan <laughs> sorry because I hear what you're saying, but all you're talking about is role-playing encounters. I'm talking about shopping for the sake of shopping. Mm. When they sit down and say, look, I had to cut three feet of rope off of my rope, so I don't have a 50-foot length anymore. I have a 47-foot length. I'm going to go trade that in to someone and see if I can make a little money for this. And They really get into the nitty-gritty. When Dan turns to me and says, I would like to go shopping at the table... I, I lean back from the table, I close the books, and I say, all right, Dan, what are you in for? Because he's going to give me a laundry list of items that he's looked up in the DMG of mundane uh, um, bits and pieces that he can grab um, for 
Oh, don't worry. It's just a, a cloak of the manta ray. It's not a big... It lets us breathe underwater, but it doesn't matter. Who cares? Right? And there's this kind of stuff that it's almost DM negotiation. Yeah. Discussing who gets what loot. Are we going to... Um, uh, we've agreed that we're going to uh, trade in these 50 gold pieces worth of emeralds, but we're going to hold back three because someone wants to put it into a tiara. Mm-hmm. So how much does that give us? What do we do? And what you're doing now is you're accounting. Yeah. And that's what the shopping is um, when it's not a social encounter. Shopping becomes pretty much balancing your books. What resources do we have? How many days of rations? How many feet of rope? Who has? Uh, who needs arrows? Yeah. Right. This kind of stuff. That's what shopping comes down to in downtime. And it is dynamic because it is going to be different all of the time. People are going to be interested in it because it has something to do for their own future. And they're going to start to think outside the box. I love it when people start buying ball bearings and 10-foot poles. Yeah. When they start going, you know what? I'm going to buy three empty flasks. Don't worry about it. Now, I I, I have a question that uh, what do you do when the party is later level and they still want to do the thing where they're buying ball bearings and uh, they've got tens of thousands of gold pieces in a bag of holding? Yeah, go nuts. Um, which, yeah, you say just go nuts, but that kind of removes the the dynamic aspect of, of this. No, it's the exact same thing. It is the exact same thing. Here's the reason. The end goal is for them to acquire these things. Mm-hmm. It's just easier for them to do it because they're in tier four. So let them. They're in tier four. They, they've earned this. They've gotten this far. Yeah, and enough. they're just balancing the books. There's no role playing here. They don't have to barter. They walk in and people just automatically, and you can throw this to them. Everyone sees you walk in, you're the local folk hero, and they all go, oh, and you get a 50% discount. Buy everything you want from the player's handbook at yeah. a 50% discount go. Yeah, exactly. And that's it. That's all you need to do. There's no role playing involved here. No. But it does get them to sit down with charts and and sometimes maps or or drawings that they've that they may going, hey, look, I want to make these these additions to my carriage. How, how can I put a turret on the top of it? Every, every single party needs to have, like, their Batmobile. Every single party does. Right. And so when it comes down to the idea of um, how can we make parachutes? Yeah. Right? We've got an airship, but I'm really scared of falling off of it. How can we make parachutes? This is where the shopping comes into play. Spell components. Um, and... And maybe that shopping is just going to a temple and getting holy water, mm-hmm. right? Whatever it is, this is a new dynamic encounter that's going to make them think outside of the game. It's not combat. It's not exploration. It's not role-playing. And it's not a skill meta. challenge. It is more meta, and that's okay. Finally, with downtime, we have crafting. We have uh, going to the tavern and getting a drink. We have, like, these... Um, uh, making money through using your skills as a profession uh, around the table and also just building relationships with your NPCs. Yeah, the thing that these all have in common is that you have a role to make. Mm-hmm. A single role to see how well you've done over blank period of time. Yeah. Again, downtime is you not questing. It's you filling in the the bits and pieces, the details around your player's or your character's life, yeah, right? And this is something that we have often seen relegated in our games to something we like to call midweek content, which we're going to have to go into a deep dive in midweek content. The, the other podcast will have, they have, it has one coming up. Yeah, so. um, but 
this is something where you as a DM go one-on-one with an, with a player and build out this stuff because sometimes this stuff might not necessarily involve the entire party. As a matter of fact, it rarely does, which is why I'm fine having it be to one role. Dan wants to go uh, pick up a lady of the night. Sure, go out there and roll a, I don't know, persuasion? I'm trying to think off the top of my head what this would be. For you, probably deception. No, intimidate. That's that's the wrong answer, Dan. You've been talking to Terry too much. Yes, yes, I have. <laughs> uh, so, um, you should be... You should be doing one role. If Dan wants to go out and and pick up the barmaid, then I'm Arcana to... Magic Hands. Yeah, no. How do you how do you do this? You go right ahead and you tell me what you want to do. You want to use a spell, press a digitation to make yourself look a little bit better, or yeah. or you want to charm the mayor in order to let him in to talk to you, to his daughter, right? Like whatever it is that you're gonna do, you have. The spell, whatever, and then that will determine the DC. You do the one roll, and I will tell you, did it did it succeed or not? Mm-hmm. If you want more than that because you're crafting, how far did we get through me building this magical sword that I, I've been inspired based on these, yeah. these drawings that we found in a dungeon? And so there's this whole big aspect of crafting. We can get into that. Roll and see how well you did tonight. Yeah. Okay, you rolled percentile dice for the crafting. You came up with a 64. I'll let you know what that means later. Thanks. I've written it down and I'll hit you up with that one-on-one another time. And things like rock gnomes and artificers exist in this world. So you will have someone be a tinkerer who just wants to make some weird shit. I just want to go an episode without you mentioning gnomes. Can we, can we do that? No. Mm. God damn. All right. <laughs> so, um, and we did add drinking to that list and that may seem a little bit strange for people that have not played a barbarian or a bard. But there's very much a constitution save. Yes. When it comes to drinking. And um, I am completely willing to hand out levels of, levels of exhaustion the next day. Right? There should be consequence to some of this downtime. And sometimes that, that consequence is just, you are now a regular at the bar and you get a discount. This is going well. Or they're sick and tired of your shenanigans at the bar and you are no longer welcome back in this one. Yeah. Uh, and this, what this does is this breathes a little bit more life into your world, breathes a little bit more life into your campaign when, just like in our real world, every action has a consequence, every action has a reaction. If you have stuff that is consequential of your downtime, your players are going to get more involved. They're going to start taking things a little bit more seriously. You're not just going to go philandering around the entire town if all of a sudden now you have a horde of very angry uh, lovers chasing you down to figure out pick one yeah you know there are some great opportunities to tell stories but i i want to i really want to impress upon new dms to spend some time in downtime because your players have spent their time sitting down in their own homes dreaming up what their character is like what they want their character to be able to do the fact that they that they've decided their character is a blacksmith is not arbitrary they want to do smithing. Exactly. And so you should sit down and realize that when you're planning your encounters, whether they're exploration or role-playing or combat, they're not about blacksmithing. This is where you start to bring in backgrounds mm-hmm. and you start to bring in the details that are uh, listed at the beginning of each of the subclass, or each of the class uh, sections in Xanathar's. Mm-hmm. Tattoos uh, are one of them for barbarians, right? Yeah, your so- barbarian has got to town and needs to uh, perform his little ritual before he is able to sleep in the 
place with all the straight lines. Yeah, whatever it is, this is part of downtime. And there may or may not be a role involved, but this is going to give your players that little bit of the ability to explore these things without having it encroach upon encounter time. And finally, we have probably the most meta of this list, which is party politics, which can be the easiest thing a DM has to navigate, but is also can be the hardest thing a DM has to navigate. Because there are times when I've seen you, Adam, when we are, uh, when like, say, my character Lockie is arguing with uh, Akra, who is told Lockie several times that she's going to murder him at some point in time. It's not going to happen now. It'll happen eventually. But there's been times where I've just seen you lean back, cross your arms and grin and just let's see where this goes. That look, look, I, I have two things. Let your players interact. Yes. Do not do not get involved. If they start talking to each other, especially in character, but even if they're in like planning stages of, of something or how do you want to go about this? Sit back. Do not get involved. The only time I will get involved is if they are missing key information about the world they've either overlooked or I, as a DM, forgot to tell them. Mm-hmm. So I will say, just so you're aware, there's also this. Or if there's an NPC who I say, and I will say, are you guys saying this out loud in character? And if the answer is yes, a nearby NPC, that's a friend of the party, that's with the party, whatever, is going to pipe up and say, what about this? And honestly, 50% of the time, it's a bad idea. Yeah. I really do play with unreliable NPCs. Yes, you do. Um, but sit back and listen. This is your opportunity to take notes. And those notes can just be simply, Dan is hostile when discussing blank. Terry is giddy when he gets the opportunity to do blank. And you go on and on and on and on and on, taking these notes so that when you are at a loss later, you can flip open your book to the the party politics section and say, you know what, Dan's been kind of half asleep this entire session. I'm going to get him engaged again by bringing this aspect back. Yeah. Right. This is such a useful tool for you as a DM, and they're going to have fun. I have done my job as a world builder if I can sit back and not say a word for 20 minutes at a time. Um, There is a caution with this as well, where not only do you have to deal with Um, your players spouting information about your campaign world that might just be wrong. You've kind of got to be a judge about this. But if you gave them a clue eight sessions ago and now they are just forgetting it, if if it's clear that the players won't remember but the character should, the DM might want to speak up here. But at the same time, you might want to be like, I've spoken up too much. I've given you guys too many, you know, easy goes yeah so you forgot about this you didn't write it down in your notes properly you've missed this note and that's gonna matter yeah here's the difference if they keep calling the black dragon the green dragon correct them that is a major thing that they their characters would freaking know yeah however how did you spell the last name of that merchant from nine sessions ago no that's on them they should have figured that out and you as a dm have to use use your judgment on this one Mm-hmm. But no, I I sit back and I, l- I let it go. One of my favorite things to do as well is to provide a little bit of wrong information as an NPC. For example, there was a giant dragon battle that happened. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and we knew this from a previous campaign. There was this giant dragon battle. That happened a year and a half ago. And now the players have come back to the site. They see dragon bones. They want to resurrect 
their old ally, the dragon, but they only see one set of bones and they make an assumption. Because an NPC said, well, we knew that this good dragon was here and there are dragon bones. And that's it. That <laughs> is you unreliable. The, you resurrect the super evil blue dragon and now you have to deal with that thing. And so watching watching the players realize that all of the strategy that they just spent a session and a half on turn into this, uh-oh, here's a, here's a problem. Now we're in combat, which we were not expecting. Yeah. What, it was a great moment, but I just sat back and let them talk it out and did not get involved. I could have very simply and very easily said, actually, um, the bones don't quite look like that of what a brass dragon would look like. Exactly. But nobody asked. Yep. Nobody went up to look. They made an assumption. This is where you, as a DM, really need to to skirt that line of realism versus assholery, for yeah. lack of a better word. Yeah. And even as a player, we all know that there's going to be that player that takes the keen mind feet, who thinks they remember every little minutia of their life from th- up to three months beforehand. Because uh, keen mind is basically you have the eidetic memory. Um, remember what our key number one rule of Dungeons and Dragons, and even life is. Just don't be a dick, right? I look at eidetic memory. How do you roleplay that? How do you roleplay that? That is ridiculous. So this is what I do at the table. If when someone takes keen mind, that means that they can pull the rest of the players to determine what was that memory. Okay. It's not just one person or one set of notes. It's many people, many sets of notes, and they can ask a couple of questions of the DM. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with saying, would my characters know blank because of, you know, keen mind or whatever it is. And nine times out of ten, the DM would be like, oh, yeah, no, you totally would. But it's the player that comes and goes, no, 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 I would know the difference because I'm a, I have an eidetic memory. Nobody, no. Just because you have an eidetic memory doesn't mean it's absolutely perfect and flawless. It could be flawed in some ways, right? And now you have misinformation that your overly confident wizard is throwing around the table. One of the things that I would say um, to get past Keen Mind, um, we're spending a lot of time on this, but one one of the things that I would say to get past Keen Mind would be um, what were what was your attention on mm-hmm. at the time? Yeah. Oh, I remember that there were seven orcs there, not six. Like, do you? Because you were over in the corner reading a spell book. Your focus was not on the combat at hand. Yeah, yeah. and that's just it. So that's why I would get around that. Yeah. But anyways... So party politics, allow your players to do and to, to interact, to, to do social encounters amongst themselves. Mm-hmm. It's very different than interacting with an NPC. And and as a DM, you sit back, you let them do it. You offer minor course corrections or information should they ask. But this, this is going to be a uh, really unique dynamic encounter that helps build your party together. Okay, so... We've talked about all the big ones, but there are a couple of little ones as well that people are going to be like, hey, you know what? You missed this. You missed this. What about this? There are mini games as well. Now, Skill Challenge is kind of a mini game, but it's so prevalent and it's so useful that I really hold in its own special regard. But let's go through this really quick. There are five basic mini games that you're going to you will run into over and over and over again. The first one is Tactics. This is when you are in combat, it is not your turn, and you are determining what you should do next. Yep. Which spell to use, what enemy to attack, how many feet is it between this guy and that guy. You see this a lot with people playing on a grid. 
Oh, all the time with people playing on the grid, yeah. Where it's less so with theater of the mind where they're kind of waiting their turn and listening to what's happening. But when you are actively planning ahead or they lean over to the person beside them and say, hey, if you cast guidance, then I can. So those are tactics in encounter strategies. Yeah. However, there's a difference between that and strategy. Strategy is party politics. It's sitting down as your characters talking about what you're going to do in that future event. Yes. Not what are we doing right now? If you are going to sit down and say, what are we doing right now? And combat is going or the goblins are, are on the horizon. They're riding on their riding dogs to come get you. And you can hear them screeching as they come closer and closer and closer. And everyone is sitting there having a conversation about, well, do we, do we wipe out the leader first or should we, should we take out the dogs first or I've got a time limit on that. Yeah. And that is tactics. Strategy is which city do we go to next? Which magic item do we get? What God should we talk to? Right. The broader, bigger uh, conversation topics that they're going to sit down and probably mull over for a week. The, the third one that's very similar to that is planning. Planning is what do you do for your own character? When you are sitting there going, what do I want my next? Am I going to multi-class? Yeah. The next time I level, should I should I swap from long swords uh, to, to uh, should I go from two short swords to one great sword? What what feat do I want? Planning is the very meta perspective. Uh, strategy is the very forefronting role playing. Yeah, in the moment. In the, in the moment, and then tactics is the in the moment uh, we're going to fight. We're in the fight thing. The no. one thing we have done in the past in our games is if you want to in character direct or coach um which is to offer tactics during a combat or whatnot you are blowing your reaction to do it if it's not your turn yeah right um which adds another little aspect of is this information worth blowing my reaction over yes so um the if it is your turn what information can you get out within six seconds Mm -hmm. so um you'll notice that each one of these is essentially taking a problem and trying to use a logical uh, tactic or strategy or plan to solve this problem to get to the next stage. Now, there are two other sides of that. We talked about combat a lot. In exploration, when you do that, that's called a puzzle. Yep. And there are many different puzzles. And those puzzles tend to be based on the environment. Now, a puzzle and a riddle, I looked it up, they're very similar. They are essentially the same thing, but for our intents and purposes here... Puzzles are exploratory. Riddles are role-playing. If it involves language or you need to convince someone of something, that's a riddle. Yeah. If you are going, if you need to move, uh, the example that you gave me before we started recording was you have this wall full of keys and there are six locks and you need to put the right keys in the right locks in the right order. That's a puzzle. Mm-hmm. Or moving statues around. Or moving crates. Like, there's so many different ways you could do this. And that's why we kind of put it under the ex- exploration side of things. Because you are going to have to interact with your environment to do it. It's not a um, linguistic riddle. Yes. Now, there are a lot. The difference between a riddle and a puzzle as well is a riddle, in my opinion, has one correct answer. A puzzle has many different potential answers that you can use. And a lot of times, spells can bypass a puzzle, but not necessarily a riddle. Some spells might be able to. You might convince someone to do something or to tell you the answer, or you can 
you can suddenly read this script appropriately and, and now you know what it means because you have comprehend languages or whatever it is. But for the most part, getting across this chasm and there's no bridge, the enemy flew over, what do you do? That's a puzzle. Yep. And it can be something as simple as cut down this tree to scale down the chasm, walk across the bottom and climb back up to, okay, hold on. How many lengths of rope do we have and how far can the archer shoot? Right. And how much do we trust that? <laughs> so, so there are, there are some options. If you have, if you have, uh, an Aarakocra in the party that can fly, how much can they carry? How, are they ferrying people back and forth? Yep. And do they have to take, do they have to do athletics checks to do it? Right. There, these are different things that, that are puzzles and they still require a certain amount of a strategic mind. But it's not a strategy or necessarily a tactic or even a planning stage. It's just solving the puzzle in front of them. It is okay. All of these things in my head fit down into problem solving. Yeah. Right. These are just solving the issue. And I don't think when it comes to puzzles, riddles have an answer. Puzzles, strategies, tactics, planning. There's no right answer here. And if it's an impossible task, that's okay. Because sometimes. I think it's okay all of the time because your players will surprise you and they will solve it. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Okay. I don't sit down and say, hey, you know what? There is one correct way to get through this door. There are 10 correct ways to get through it. Even if every time you touch it, it it shoots spikes at you and you take one damage, one piercing damage each time, that barbarian can knock it down with his fists given enough times. Yeah. Absolutely go nuts. Rage, believe me, you'll be taking damage every round, oh, yeah. but punch this door down. And we say there's 10 different answers. There's 10 answers that we as DMs know about, but be open to the other 50 that the players are going to come up with that you're not expecting. So just to kind of summarize everything, because we've talked a lot about many different things here. Yeah. There are the pillar kind of dynamic encounters, which is combat to combat. Combat to exploration, combat to role-playing. Exploration to combat, exploration to exploration, and exploration to role-playing. Role-playing to combat, role-playing to exploration, and role-playing to role-playing. Got it in one. Got it in one, and I didn't even look down. (laughs) There are benefits to both starting and ending with each one of the pillars, depending on your dynamic encounter. There are also skill challenges, activities during downtime, letting the party have inter-party politics there are these mini games these problem solving puzzles riddles tactics strategies and planning but how do you know how difficult to make it there are many different answers to this and the dmg has a great guide on on how to create monsters at different cr ratings and whatnot but honestly as a dm that's been that's been doing multiple encounters because we play eight plus hour sessions right so I, I, it essentially boils down to one thing for me. I can look at the number of hit dice. I can look at the number of, of damage dice. I can look at the two hit modifier, but it comes down to the action economy. And the action economy in fifth edition is huge. Yeah. It's a make or break. It is. And we saw that with the Merolith who had seven attacks around and a reaction at the end of everyone's turn. That means that it's going just as often as your guys are and, and, it's going to hit. Yep. It is going to hit. It is consistently dealing out damage. Third level magic missile will do a minimum of 10 damage around. And you really only have shield. That's your only real defense against it. 
Hope that you're sitting in an anti-magic field. You have taken down a, uh, le- uh, what level was I? 16, 17 at you, the time? You were level 17. With just a bunch of cultists. There were six minions that each had 24 hit points and uh, AC of uh, 12. And they were spread out around the room and they each had a level three wand of magic missile. That's it. And they blew me up. You did not have enough actions to take them out. Because if you couldn't knock them down in the first hit, then they were going to be there in the next round to hit you back. Exactly. So the action economy is big. And we all know about it as far as combat goes. But the action economy is also really important when it comes to exploration and role playing. Who talks when? Who's going to go first when they're exploring? Who gets to roll the perception check? Funny enough, there is a mechanic already in this game that helps us with this uh, question and that is initiative right and initiative is important at all tiers of play or all pillars of play and in every different kind of dynamic encounter yeah and here's the other thing about a dynamic encounter is the initiative doesn't shift in this encounter Mm because it's just one encounter yep which means that people are going to have to start holding actions as things change on them they're going to need to start holding attacks and handing items off to each other and using other interactions to open doors and move around. And it's going to radically change the, the way that your players are thinking and the order of events is really going to matter. Now also having bad guys go first or having layer events happen on initiative count 20 or environmental hazards that are kicking off every time that you recharge on a five or six. Yep. Right. These are all ways that you can make your environment or your initiative more intense and more challenging. Yep. Make people pay attention to the initiative more. Yeah. Um, But the action economy and initiative, they work hand in hand and they can make or break. When we are sitting here coming up with a level one encounter to work with and hey, we've thrown down two skeletons. And you say, that's great, but my party's level four. Right. All you need to do is change the action economy. That's it. Or maybe let them have a surprise ambush and let them get a bunch of attacks off first. Because remember, there's no such thing as a surprise round in fifth edition, but there's a surprised condition, Mm -hmm. which means that if you go first, anyone who is surprised, uh, you have advantage on attacks against them until their turn in initiative comes up. Yep. This is huge. This can this can make battles feel very, very dynamic, and it can shift everything. Also, if you run on crit tables, I really highly recommend that some of the, the critical successes and failures mm-hmm. change initiative around. Exactly. Um, or add an additional attack or stop a player's turn in the middle. Of, so when the fighter with three attacks crit fails... The only thing that happens is they kind of like wrench their elbow a little bit and they do not get any further attacks. That's crippling for a round. (laughs) So, but it does, it's not going to break your character's sword or Mm -hmm. the action economy and the, and the initiative order. These are ways that you can play with encounters to make them far more dynamic than they are at base level. And when we say uh, making uh, using initiative and, and this to make your encounters more dynamic, we're not just meaning for combat. We're meaning for everything we've previously discussed. If you are having an exploration to exploration encounter, um, 
there's nothing wrong with rolling initiative just to even help you manage the table, depending on your group size. I know me, whenever I'm running a table of a lot of people, if I have six plus people around a table, even if it's a mundane role-playing encounter, I make initiatives be rolled. It's also one of the things that I, as a DM, write down along with passive perception and passive uh, uh, investigation. I suggest, sorry, I'm going to pause you for a second. Also write down passive stealth. Yep. But don't use a 10 plus, use an 8 plus for passive stealth. Yep. And also write down passive insight. Yes. This, these four will make your life easier as a DM. And if you write down kind of a passive initiative as well, you know, if you have a role playing thing and everyone's kind of talking around the table at once, you could be like, okay, just so everyone's aware, that guy said it first because of. Yep, percep- uh, that's what their initiative is, right? It brings initiatives in there a little bit more. Now, if uh, your cleric, who's got an initiative of negative one, uh, is saying something far more important than your bard or your rogue, who's got an initiative of 12 somehow, um, that also brings in a little bit of party politics to like the bard goes, no, 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 listen to this guy. He's right. Yeah. Yes. I I look at it as well as based on the scenario. Let's talk role playing for a moment. If you are in a temple and the cleric has the lowest initiative, the passive initiative, and they're sitting there and they're talking to to a high priestess. So the high priestess is going to turn to them and say, uh, what do you think about this? And the cleric is going to respond. But the others are sitting there going, oh, don't forget about this. And, and remember that. And meanwhile, the rogue with or the bard with the highest initiative order is off in the corner drawing dicks on a statue. That's got to go after. Let the cleric go. We're in yeah. the cleric's room. Here's where your priest character is supposed to shine. Yeah. So give them the opportunity to be in the spotlight first. And so I feel like um, depending on your archetype and where you are and what the scenario is, that can shift passive uh, initiative by, mm-hmm. by just a little bit. L- reward your players for making the choices that they that they initially made. Yeah. Right? They chose to be a paladin for a reason. They chose to be a monk for a reason. If you have a monk and you're going into a monastery, that monk has to be front and center. Yes. Right? The same way that you already instinctively know that the barbarian and the fighter are going to be front and center when it comes time to fighting. The cleric and the druid are going to be front and center when it comes time to healing. The rogue... And the bard are going to be front and center when it comes time to arrest someone, right? Like, because when you arrest someone, it is the bard or the rogue that gets arrested. Oh, yes. I was like, <laughs> something's wrong here because I go arrest paladin fighter. That's They're the ones doing, they're the ones putting the manacles on. Um, no, also the bard. Uh, so there are many, Dan, you know this from your furniture business. Um, there are many different aspects to building dynamic encounters. And I think that everyone needs to be hyper aware of them because it's not just when was the last time we got in a fight. The last thing that we didn't talk about, and we're not going to talk about because you guys are going to see us talk about this all the time in the other episodes is who is the focus of this encounter? Yes. Is it the priest, the mage, the warrior, the criminal, or the outdoorsman? And we've made a general like that. So that we're not focusing and splitting it 13 different ways, one for each class. Yeah. We're splitting it five ways so that the mage can be a sorcerer or a bard or a wizard or an artificer. Or hell, maybe even a druid. Yeah. But maybe sometimes the druid is the outdoorsman. 
And maybe sometimes the divine soul sorcerer is the priest. Yep. Right? Depending on what it is that's going on at the time, uh, we're going to keep it more generic with our archetypes. But you should be thinking about that as well as a DM that is prepping encounters. When was the last time that player X got the spotlight? So the last thing that I want to talk about before we wrap up here is two quotes that I find incredibly useful to keep my ego as a DM <laughs> in check. And this is, um, this is I'm not kidding, written on cue cards and have has been blue tacked up to my bedroom wall so that I look at it as I leave, like it's right beside my door and I look at it. I should probably frame them and hang them up. But it says, um, there are two quotes. One is from uh, Moltke the Elder, who is a Prussian field marshal back in the late 1800s. And it is no plan survives contact with the enemy. That means, and I know the players are not the enemy, but I am... <laughs> I was going to say something. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm very much... Uh, I, I'm championing the needs and the wants of their enemies, of the bad guys. Yes. So therefore, the characters are sometimes the enemy. And when I'm creating conflicts and challenges, I'm doing it to to undermine these other these these players around the table, yeah. right? To make it difficult. But the moment that it goes that I like roll initiative and the first player does something, all of my plans are completely out the window. I've set up the conflict ahead of time, but it will never go the way that I expect it to. Yeah, set up set up your encounters far more open-handed than than you think you need to, right? Like there should be more than one way to skin the cat here. And if you have that one specific way that the party, uh, you need them to finish this encounter, and you do that a lot, you're railroading your party. That's why we really like dynamic encounters is because one of the things we haven't talked about is when does the um, the shift trigger? Yeah. Because we don't know. We have no idea. We just know that at some point someone's going to run in. Maybe the combat actually ends. Maybe maybe they kill all of the bad guys in the first round before you can have initiative count 20 come around again yep. and have someone else pop in and do something. Or maybe it takes 11 rounds, the barbarian's rage is dropped, and everybody is clinging to life. It's a bad time to be introducing a scouting party. <laughs> right that yeah. has come in as reinforcements or it's the perfect time who knows right you don't know which way it's going to go you never know what the outcome is going to be so don't stress about it all you can do is create the conflicts and assume that the party will succeed if you ever create a conflict that they will fail and you want them to fail do not let them roll dice if you want them to fail if I want to take the party, and Dan just gave me a look like, what are you talking about? If I want the party to get captured by palace guards. Oh, yes, yeah. I do not let them roll dice. If I want them to fall down the chasm, I do not let them roll dice. The bridge gave out beneath them. Roll dexterity saves to see how badly you get damaged. You do not get to roll dice to see if you do not Get fall. out of it, yeah. If you want there to be a failure, narrate it. That just happens. Yeah. Otherwise, they will get out of it in strange, bizarre ways because your plans will never survive contact with the enemy. So therefore, if you want your plans to go off, don't let the enemy contact them. Don't let your <laughs> don't let your big bad evil guy monologue five feet from your barbarian. 
That's a stupid idea. That is contact <laughs> with the enemy. You're you're going to lose your big bad evil guy. Put up a force field or a physical barrier or have them be a hologram or leave a note, whatever it is. Yeah. But remove the idea of contact. The other quote that I want to bring up really quickly before we wrap up is from Dwight D. Eisenhower, the old American president. Plans are worthless, but planning is everything. Sitting down and making the plans, what we are doing, what we did in the first four uh, episodes here of saying, here's where we are and what's to the north and who are the bad guys. We have no idea if if our imp and mage are even going to make it to the end of level five. They may get slaughtered in the second session. Yep. Who knows? But the idea of planning it out ahead of time, let us know kind of what's going on in the world. And it gives us the ability to adapt and to move around and to shift and change our priorities. When it comes to dynamic encounters, knowing the plan that you want to have some scouts come in and and, and bolster reinforcements in a combat, or you want suddenly the ceiling to cave in, and there to be a huge monstrosity that dumps down to the middle of this battle that both sides now have to team up to fight. Whatever it is, having that there gives you more um, agency as a DM to be able to change and shift what's going on. But just because you said that that is going to happen does not mean it will. Your players will change everything. They will Pull the rug out from underneath you over and over and over again. My job as a DM, I'm I'm DMing a tier four party. We have two sessions left to go right yep. now. Um, everyone is really nervous about how it's going to go, but no one is more nervous than I am. Because for the last, I'm going to say 12 sessions or so, including the next two, all I can do is react. I have set the ball in motion and I'm watching you guys go through it. I am maintaining numbers. And, and uh, reading out loud what the initiative is. I'm a bookkeeper and I describe how you guys are winning. Yeah. And that's just it. I want my bad guys to win because I should always be championing for my bad guys. But their plans will not survive contact with their enemy. And I can't be upset if they kill my big bad evil guy in the second last session instead of the last one. You have to stay flexible. You have to stay... Uh... A, a little malleable. And, and, and remember that your your specific plans, like on round two, this will happen. That can change if your party does something weird, right? And let's be completely honest, your party will do something weird. So that's the last thing about dynamic encounters that, that we wanted to bring up was just the, the fact that just because you set up a combat doesn't mean that it's going to be a combat. It's good to have it as a role play, as a backup. And you know that that is there and it's loaded and ready to go. Yeah. This actually gives you more tools as a DM. It takes a little bit more forethought, but it is really worth it in the long run. And you will find that you actually have to prep fewer encounters per session because you're technically doing double the work for each encounter. And you can run two combat encounters. Each one may take 40 minutes or one combat encounter that will bleed into another. And that'll take an hour and a half. Yeah. So remember, have multiple tiers, multiple aspects to every encounter will make your party more engaged, more involved in the game, and will, at the end of the day, lighten your load a little bit as a DM as well. So now that we have a good grasp on the kinds of encounters we'll be using, as well as our tactics, 
Let's take a week and allow the waters of inspiration to come to a simmer. Hopefully, this will give us some opportunities to come up with some interesting starting encounters for our level one party. Tune in next week when we discuss session one. Thanks for listening to this episode of the new It's a Mimic campaign builder series. You can find us at www.itsamimic.com and on iTunes, Spotify, and most podcast catchers. We're also available on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and more. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on how you would use dynamic encounters in your own homebrew campaigns. I'm Adam. And I'm Dan. And we'll be back with more prep work next week. Okay, bye.